from the Gospel of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I cannot believe it is almost November. Uh, and this is a great time of year because this is when all of us Floridians kind of, you know, come out of our hidey holes that we've been in since the summer and start experiencing the great outdoors. One of the things my family has started to do with some uh, more regularity is to take our dog for a walk, you know, with the four of us going around the neighborhood. And as we've kind of developed this habit, one thing I've noticed about my youngest, the four-year-old, is that half of the time he is nowhere to be found. And it isn't that he goes, he doesn't go running off into the woods or anything like that, but he comes up with the most fantastic acorn and stick and bug and dead thing collection that you could ever imagine. We had to start taking a little plastic shopping cart to kind of keep up with all of his treasures. But at the same time, one of the things that I've noticed in this little game I've started to play is, let's see how many mailboxes away we can get before he notices that we're gone or before I get anxious enough to call him, right? I mean, that's kind of the game of chicken we're playing. He always wins. I mean, I mean, he is so in his own world that I have to call him, and even then I have to call him several times. And I'd like to think that that's something that he's going to grow out of. But then I read this article of a hiker last year uh, in Colorado. I don't know if you've heard about this, but uh, he left a trail on uh, Colorado's highest mountain, and he got lost. And what's worse is, he ignored calls that would have gotten him back on track. I mean, literal calls. He had a phone on him. He ignored phone calls and voicemails and text messages because, as he said later, he didn't recognize the number. Unbelievable, right? I mean, it seems unbelievable, but then we approach our gospel and we see that this is Jesus' experience in his ministry on earth. What do we learn in John 1? Jesus came to the world, the world that he made, and he was unrecognized. He called to his own people who were lost, and he was rejected. And there's still the ever-present danger with us because Jesus hasn't stopped calling us. He hasn't stopped calling us by name. There's an ever-present danger that with us even today, that we would ignore his call. The entire section of Luke's gospel that surrounds our text for this morning picks up on this theme of Jesus' pursuit of his people and the difference between those that hearken to his voice and those that are unable or unwilling to invite him in. So I've got two points for today. And I want you to pay attention. This is some great alliteration, all right, and a door, door analogy. So check this out. Two points for today. The padlock of pride and the key to conversion. The padlock of pride and the key to conversion. In our gospel reading just last week, Jesus told a parable that set the stage for all the events that followed, including our text for this morning. You might recall this parable because we read it right here last week. In the temple there were two men praying, right? A Pharisee was praying to himself, and a tax collector was praying to God. You, you recall that parable? Well, the Pharisee, I say he was praying to himself because the reality was he was just standing up in front of everybody and publicly listing off the reasons for his own greatness, 
only kind of giving God a tip of the hat at the end, right? Lord, look how amazing I am and all of the things that I can do. Everyone else pay attention to you, eyes up here. And, you know, and just going on and on. And then it's like, oh yeah, and God, you made me this way, so that's great. Now, we see somebody like that, right? Have you ever encountered somebody like that who might love themselves a little bit too much or believes that they're God's gift to humanity? And, and, but before we roll our eyes too hard, the cold reality is that this Pharisee was more externally righteous than anyone you have ever met. I can't tell if that's Christmas music. We're almost at Christmas season, but you all hold your horses. We haven't hit Thanksgiving yet. Um, so, so going back to the Pharisee, before we roll our eyes too hard at this person who's self-aggrandizing, he's more externally righteous than anyone you've ever met. Because he was a Pharisee, he would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Now, can anyone here claim that? Don't, don't raise your hands. That's pride. It's a trap. He would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized verbatim, even the genealogies. And he would have been so careful to keep the commandments of God that on the Sabbath, when they were told not to work, right, that's a commandment, he took that command so seriously that he wouldn't pick up anything larger than a date. And he wouldn't take even a thousand steps for fear of that being considered working. And he was so externally righteous that he would have tithed a tenth of everything he had, even his spices, which no, that's not a currency we take. You can keep those at home. Exhibiting greater fidelity to God's law than anyone you have ever known, which is why he was celebrating his greatness. And yet at the end of the parable that we heard last week, it was not he who was justified. Well, why? It's interesting. I, I taught this parable to the Sunday school students last week, and I compared the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee, and I asked them, you know, which one of these do you think that Jesus approved of? And guess what they said? The Pharisee. He did all the right things. Isn't that interesting? But he wasn't justified, and we learn why from Jesus' encounter with almost this exact man right after the parable. Right, the parable is a story Jesus told, but then Jesus meets, meets the man in real life, the rich young ruler who in his pride sought to earn salvation. But pride can't earn you salvation. It can only ever be a barrier that keeps God out. And it can do so in several ways. This is how our pride keeps us from God. First of all, pride would have us believe that we have nothing to be saved from because we aren't that bad. I mean, honestly, compared to the people around me, I'm looking pretty good, right? Not you all, but, but you know, others. And, and notice that we only chose those, choose those people who is convenient for us right? Who's convenient for us to choose to look better than. We don't choose the people that are better than us. They don't need to be on our radar, just the ones that we know, you know, we kind of have a few more things going on. And as long as we do some good things, we must be good. That's what a lot of people believe. And if we are good, then we don't really need to engage with God, do we? And this trail of pride can go as far as this. And following that progression, if we are good enough, then it is really God who owes us something for our goodness. You might say, well, how, how do we get in that position? Well, have you ever experienced a tragedy 
and you said, God, why me? And a part of that why me was, I go to church, I pray, I love you, I'm devoted to you. How could you? And as ridiculous as this might all sound, it's actually a well-traveled road. Uh, When we were traveling on our way to Yellowstone this summer, uh, we had a family reunion, and I had almost this exact conversation uh, with my favorite uncle. Uh, he's, um, he's somewhere between a, a deist and atheist, depending on you know, who, what philosopher he's been reading at the time. And, uh, and he, always, he always questions me. He's like, why in the world did you become a priest? Like, what are you doing with this religion thing? And it always comes from a different angle. This time we were talking about faith, and he said, and it was very Nietzschean of him, he said, I don't get the guilt thing that you Christians are all into. He said, you know, if I do something wrong, I apologize to the person, I make amends, and I move on. And in his mind, he has no need for God because he is a relatively good guy. Relative being the key word. Yeah, there's a pun. A few of you caught it. But the reality is, as Jesus tells the rich young ruler, only God is good. Anything short of perfection is short of God's standard of goodness. Depending on who you talk to, goodness is one of uh, three transcendentals, goodness, beauty, and truth. God sets the standard for all of those, and He defines the terms. And anything else doesn't measure up. Anything that falls short of perfection falls short of God's standards of goodness, and as Frank Robinson said, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Only God is good. But it's our pride that keeps us from noticing. It's our pride that's a barrier to God. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay, The Great Sin, he said, you know, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Well, if pride keeps us from looking up. It does not keep us from looking out. And this is the second thing pride does in keeping us from seeking God. If you've read this section in Luke, you'll notice that it's always the crowd that that is keeping people from Jesus. It's always the crowd that's in the way. Right before this um, pericope, there's a story of a blind man who's reaching out and crying out to Jesus, but the crowd keeps telling him to be quiet, get out of the way, shut your mouth. And in this section, the crowd is quite literally keeping Zacchaeus away from God, isn't it? He's got to seek God by climbing a tree. So again, the crowd's literally keeping these two men away, but in the case of the Pharisee and the rich young ruler, the crowd is metaphorically keeping people away. And here's what I mean. Those men put their status in society as respectable people above their pursuit of a relationship with God. They weren't willing to let go of what people thought of them in order to grasp onto God. And that's pride. It's a diabolical form of pride. I think it's something we can all identify with. Um, There's this tragic story in um, Kenneth Clark's uh, biography, Kenneth Clark of BBC Civilization fame. If you've seen the series, it's in the 60s. If not, his name's Kenneth Clark. Uh, He wrote of an encounter with God in his autobiography. He said, walking into a church 
and to the Church of San Lorenzo, this professed liberal secular humanist said, for a few minutes my whole being was irradiated with a kind of heavenly joy. Remember, he's not looking for God. He just walks into a place. My whole being is irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had ever known before. But then he went on and he said, Wonderful though it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My family would think I was going mad. And perhaps, after all, it was a delusion, a delusion, for I was in every way unworthy of receiving such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. End of story. Imagine, imagine being so preoccupied with the thoughts of others that God greets you in person, and you miss it. You don't have to imagine that hard. There were crowds of people around Jesus constantly throughout the Gospels, and yet few followers that stayed with him. I mean, how many of us have neglected to show fidelity to God because we were worried about what others might think? We may have toyed with the idea of committing to God, but we were unwilling to risk alienation. This, too, is a form of pride and is effective as any other at keeping us away from the presence of God. Even, if it, even when it is only He that can communicate our worth in a manner that we can believe it. I mean, that's the great privilege of the sons and daughters of God. Well, if pride is the lock that prevents us from God, then what's the key? Well, that brings us to our second point, the key to conversion. You'll remember that in Jesus' parable, the Pharisee was not the only one praying to God, right? The man who's standing there saying, everyone look at me. There was someone else far off into the corner, didn't want to be noticed, didn't want to be seen. Head and eyes to the floor, who could only barely choke out the words, God, have mercy to me, a sinner. This man was the tax collector. And if you know anything about tax collectors, you understand exactly why this man couldn't raise his eyes to God. Now, we talked about this before. Tax collectors are um, the great betrayers of the Jewish people. Let me ask you this. You know, Rome covered a bunch of land, right? They had a bunch of territory that was under their control. What's required to keep control of, you know, the entire known world at that point, at least in their eyes? What's, in, what's required to keep control of that? Large military force, right? What's required to retain a large military force? money, taxes. So the tax collectors weren't bad just in the fact that they were taking more than what they were due, than what the Roman government thought it was due, and pocketing extra for themselves. They were also working hand-in-hand hand with the oppressors to escape from, from under their boots. And as I was thinking about these tax collectors, I, were, I was reminded of the position of the capos in Auschwitz. If you know anything about the Capos, these were the Jews who in concentration camps were recruited by the SS to lead the labor camps over their own people. In order to keep them working, in order to keep them in line, the Capos received civilian clothes, maybe an extra portion at dinner time, a different place to live. And the thing about the Capos is the concentration camps could never have been so full without them. The Nazis didn't have the personnel to keep those things running without the capos, not nearly. They were necessary. 
And I think that's about as close as, as we can think of historically to the role of a tax collector. It's somebody that you hated. And that's why he couldn't lift his eyes up to God. And the reality is, while you and I might not be that bad, again, comparison being a form of pride, right? We have all had moments when the illusion of ourselves as great people has been shattered. When we realize we weren't as good of a spouse as we thought we were, or as good of a parent, or as good an employee, or good as a boss, you name it. And while we'd like to boost ourselves up, sometimes we see the stark reality of what's in front of us. And our view of ourselves, the illusion of ourselves is shattered. We are utterly humbled. And what's our first, what's your first reaction when you are shattered in that manner? When you come to grips with who you actually are? Well, it's the same as Zacchaeus. Our impulse is to turn to a source that can make us whole, that can put us back together. And that's why Zacchaeus, the tax collector from our gospel, knowing full well who he is, is so clearly desperate to see Jesus, to see and be seen by him. You see, some people read Zacchaeus as just this curious guy who's willing to you know, dash off to the crowd and climb a tree, but that's, that's not true at all. Jewish men did not run. You did not run. You were stately and you were dignified, and you did not hike up your robes and expose your legs to move from point A to point B faster. That was not done. And Jewish men certainly did not climb trees. If you want to risk ridicule in running, you're guaranteeing it by climbing a tree. Zacchaeus was desperate because he's turning to this man, Jesus, that he has heard so much about, believing that if he could be absolved by this man, then maybe he could absolve himself. And Jesus' response to him is to look him full in the face, to call him by name, and to invite himself into Zacchaeus' home. You see, this is the key to conversion. This is what opens the door to God. It's not just humility. It's not just a sense of self. It's bringing yourself before the Lord and having him restore you to health and wholeness by his mercy and grace. It's not just becoming aware of our shortcomings, but having them known and forgiven. And then notice what Zacchaeus does next. On his conversion, what's he do? Lord, half of everything, giving it away. Lord, I've wronged all these people. I'm going to pay back fourfold, right, which was, which was in the Old Testament. Now, I want you to notice what Zacchaeus is doing here. This isn't a sermon about stewardship or tithing. What Zacchaeus is doing is he is showing the fruit of a, of a converted heart. He is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And here's how he was able to do that. You know, and I noticed this um, when, we talk, when we do talk about tithing and we say, you know, um, everything you own is God's, and people are like, are you out of your mind? You know, like, what are you talking about? And then in the E100 this past Thursday, it's the same sort of thing. Um, if you were at the E100, Hannah presents her son that she prayed for to the temple and offers him to God, and people think, how in the world could a mother do that? Well, because they know what Zacchaeus learned, that it's not that God wants your stuff. 
It's not that God merely wants your obedience. What God ultimately wants is you. And once God has you, and you have him, the rest of it, 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 it fades in importance to the possession of one another. That's what it is, by the way, for Jesus to go into Zacchaeus' home, to abide with him. Revelation picks this up. The book of Revelation says, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So often we confuse God as this far-off being that we have to earn or attain to, that we have to reach some certain level before we're worthy of being noticed, but the exact opposite is true. It is God who is pursuing us. It is us, it is we who erect barriers to God and not God to us. And so let me encourage you this morning to take the example of Zacchaeus. Let us be those who hearken to the Lord's voice today and prepare our hearts to receive him. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.